Well, it's great to have you today. Thanks for coming to support our class, David's Blended Family. Uh, I want to introduce my lovely bride, Daltry, Tyree, everybody. Daltry and I uh, have a blended family ourselves, and uh, we can tell you that it's not nearly as dramatic and complicated as David's blended family, thankfully. But we learned a lot as uh, parents of a blended family, and we also uh, have our experience working with um, people and emotional things. Daltry is a psychiatric nurse practitioner, so she does psychiatry every uh, day of the week. And we both retired from full-time ministry, and uh, we're happy to be doing psych and counseling and things like that. This is my husband, Stephen Tyree. Welcome. Come on. And so he actually is the only person I know who has held full-time position as a minister in a blended family. Because there aren't a lot of, you know, married, remarried, blended families in the church. And so um, I think his experience and voice is very valuable. Due to the grace of God and graceful elders. <laughs> so right now we just want to welcome you and I think that if you're here in this class then the diversity of families is very important to you like it is to us and we know that um, in our society today our culture the families don't always look like the families that are leading our congregations and we wanted to just put a broad umbrella there because we're not just talking about families of divorce and remarriage. We're also talking about complex families, so families that have foster kids or grandparents that are raising their grandkids or um, families that have adoption. So just something that's bigger than just a traditional nuclear family is what we're talking about um, when we talk about um, these blended families because there is an um, inequality and inequity sometimes in the families like we'll see that we saw in David's family. So we just want to welcome you, and um, I hope that you are having uh, a full cup at Pepperdine this week, and we're celebrating our second <coughs> hallelujah, and we will today. So I've tried to think, as an analogy for me, what is, what is the role of the family um, in the church? And so, you know, we know that the church isn't the building, it's the people, right? And so you think, well, okay, so the people are like the bricks, and of course God is our foundation. And the Holy Spirit is kind of the mortar that keeps us together. So what's the role of family? How does family fit in there? Because family is very important in the upbringing of the children and their protection. So I'm going to go with it's like the insulation. So families are like insulation because they kind of help protect us. And some families are better at insulating kids than others. Some insulation has tears in it. And there are other pieces of insulation that come in to fill in the gaps. And so that's kind of um, where... Uh, where my analogy is going to go. So at this time, I'd like to introduce Stephen Tyree, who's going to come in and talk about David's blended family. Thank you, Daltry. Tyree, my name is Stephen. And if you want to go to get more resources for some of the things we'll talk about, uh, you can go to my website. And uh, there's videos, and we're adding things onto that site. Uh, the site is not focused on blended families, but it's focused on some of the things we'll talk about in regard to uh, how our brain works and how that influences how we interact in our family systems. So uh, you might want to jot down some of the scriptures we're going to look at because it's really important for you to consider um, what the Bible has to say about favoritism. So why is favoritism the topic of, for today? So Daughtry and I did a lot of prayer about, spent a lot of time in prayer about what was the real problem in David's family? And what is the problem in, in all human families? Uh, James chapter 2, verse 1, James the brother of Jesus says to the early church in his letter that we need to be really, really careful that we don't show what? Favoritism. Uh, and he was talking about that to the congregation as a whole in all relationships. He, was, he talked about if people come into the room like you walked in today, and uh, there might be this idea, well, we're going to hold the best seats, you know, for the special people. Of course, in most churches, the best seats are what? 
and the back. That's right. <laughs> Versus the front. So the culture has changed a little bit since those days, right? But I want you to think about what James says. It's really powerful. He says in James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? James challenges it. Now he says, he calls them what? Brothers and sisters. Which means he's saying what? We're all in the family together. But what he challenges in the church family is are we really believing in Jesus in the way we interact with each other as brothers and sisters, right? Some people are my brothers and sisters because they're really cool and they like to do stuff I like to do and we have fun together. So I like them. I like to hang out with them. And so we have out of our human flesh, out of our human instinct, we have this, this desire to hang out with people who are like us or who think like us, who, who agree with us. How do you see this happen in the, in the family, in the family system? If, as a dad, I play basketball, right? And then I have, and let's just take the nuclear family before we move to blended families. If I play basketball and I have two sons or I have three daughters, which one will I have a tendency to favor if they like sports? Which one? The one that plays basketball. I will find a kinship right? Oh, wow, you like what I like, right? If, uh, you know, a mom uh, loves to go camping and fishing with her kids, right? And two of the kids hate to go camping and fishing, and one of them really loved to go camping and fishing, who's going to be a little tighter and closer? <laughs> right, by nature, not by God's will, but by human will, we are attracted to and are more interested in hanging out with people who kind of like us and like what we like and think like, like we think. So we're constantly challenged to not have a favorite child. Have you heard people ask that question? Do you have a favorite? Who's your favorite, right? So we're going to talk about that and how it influences the family system. Now I'm going to talk about the theological perspective of this and a little bit of science and then Daltrey's going to come along and talk about deeply what happens uh, in the, the impact of favoritism and bias on the family system in more complicated ways. So I wanted us to get started uh, with James chapter 2 verse 1 to start this uh, lesson with the idea that when David lost his way as a parent, it was when he lost sight of his own calling and how he was called. Remember the story in Samuel, when Samuel goes, goes to Jesse's house? First uh, <clears throat> Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, uh, Samuel gets to Jesse's house, and Jesse has lined up who? Oldest son. Oldest to the youngest. Except for who? David. 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 The baby. The baby. And since he's the youngest and he's the baby, guess what? They messed with calling him in. Leave him out shepherding. Ah, there's no sense in calling him in, right? So Jesse has a prejudice toward his oldest son. And then I guess sort of just in case, he has the next eldest and the next. But he leaves David totally out of the equation because he's the lesser than. So the, the parent, Jesse, the father, already has a bias against David to be anointed and chosen. Come in, welcome. Good to have you guys. James chapter uh, 2, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, do you think with your acts of favoritism that you really are believing in Jesus Christ? So what we see happen in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel uh, looks at Eliab and he thinks to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is now before me, or now here before the Lord. So Samuel, automatically, out of his human gut, out of his human flesh, he says, oh, well, the oldest son's the one, right? Jesse, the father, has decided this is the one. So already there's bias. <coughs> there's already favoritism. But the beautiful thing about God's word is then God speaks, and God says to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So, although God shows up in the nation of Israel, he is always showing up loving these people, calling them to himself. The human people of Israel are constantly struggling with their bias, right? And their desire to think that, well, men are in charge, women are second, children are beneath the, the wives and the mothers, and then there's the slaves, and then there's, I mean, the history of the Hebrew people is filled with bias and prejudice and putting certain people at the top and certain people at the bottom. This has been a human struggle, and guess what? We still struggle with it today. We still struggle with it today. So what I believe James is talking about in James chapter 2 is if we really want to be a parent or support family systems that are blended, especially that are blended, is that we need to be able to look through a lens of Christ. Because Christ came and was born in a manger, right? He was the king that was not a king, right? And uh, Sarah Barton covered that real well, so we won't go into that. And others do this week. So why do we do this? You cannot help but feel bias. You can't help the feeling, right? You go to your favorite restaurant, the server comes up and says, what'd you like to eat? Boom, right? I want something greasy and fat and <coughs> carbohydrates, and, right? Your body says what? Unga bunga, you know, <laughs> me, want, me want what I want. We want my food, I wanna eat, I wanna have, I wanna fill my belly, I wanna, I, the gut says, this is what I want. I want what I've tasted before, what I have enjoyed before. How often do we say, oh, let's try something really different that we've never had, that seems strange and all that. That's not, that doesn't come out of our automatic pattern. So our brain, we have two, if you want to think about this, way, you have two, you have two experiences in the way you think. You have your automatic flesh brain, you have your automatic survival brain, that's the part of you that doesn't require thinking about thinking. You don't have to think about thinking. It'll just do it for you. You hop in your car, you drive down the highway, 20 minutes later, you're in the parking lot. You don't even remember how you got there because your survival brain got you there because it's recorded the pattern of the way you've gone down that highway 5,000 times. You get on the keyboard and you just start typing away. You don't have to go, uh, where's the A? Because you've been doing that for dozens and decades or however long. Your automatic brain tells you things all the time. 20 times faster is your automatic brain. 20 times faster. So when you get in, in your car and you're at a stoplight and the stoplight turns green, your automatic brain goes 20 miles an hour. But your That's your survival brain. But your higher brain will go one mile an hour. Now the higher brain is still really, really, really fast, Rand, right? It's really, really, really fast. It's just nowhere near as fast as the automatic brain. You basically have this shortcut in your brain. There's like this lower shortcut path that the fear brain takes. And if we want to think about our thinking, it takes a little longer. It's still really fast, but it takes a little longer. So anytime you're interacting with children or you're interacting with people and you want to avoid being biased or have favorites and show favoritism or prejudice, then you have to slow down and you have to go, wait a minute, how am I getting ready to interact with this person? Am I, am I going to just do what my gut says? Am I going to do what my flesh says? Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 through 17. This, to me, is the, the best proof text of the science that I'm talking about in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 16, 15, 16, and 17, this is where Jesus says to Peter, he says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says, well done. But 
where does Jesus credit his thinking from? Is it his higher brain, his spirit, or his survival brain? That's right. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. But God did. So what Peter's saying there is that we, every day, every day we wake up and we go through life and we live our life and we interact with people. And every day when we interact with people, we have an automatic thought. We have an automatic feeling and it happens to us. I just feel this feeling. My kids come get off the bus or I pick them up at school and they jump in the car. And one of those kids, whether they're your birth kids or adopted kids or blended through marriage and remarriage, whatever's happening, one of them is going to be a little more fun to you than some of the rest. Right? Their temperament may be a little different than your temperament. What they find funny and interesting will maybe be different than what you find funny and interesting. Right? This isn't about good and evil. It's just about the idea of why do we sometimes have a little preference towards certain people or certain children? Because we relate to, yes. to that pattern. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And so the survival brain is concerned with one thing, and that's my survival. Exactly. It's not about your survival. And, but people will say, well, of course we want our kids to survive. That, yeah. Because if, if your kids survive, they're going to help you what? Survive when you're old. Yeah. I'm having trouble following all this brain stuff. But you say survival brain, thinking brain, which and the spiritual brain. Good good point. Which brain was Peter using here? Very good point. So basically we have the lower automatic survival brain. We can call it a lot like fear brain. That's the flesh. So when Jesus says the the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So we basically have a part of our brain that is the body, it's the, it's the animal brain. It's the kind of brain that the zebras have and the squirrels have, right? There are all kinds of animals that ensure that they feed their offspring, but they're not interested in feeding some other animal's offspring, right? But that's not automatic or they're synonym. That is automatic, yeah. Yeah, all that's automatic. Now the higher brain, is the brain where you, that's where you think about thinking. The prefrontal cortex. Yeah, that's your higher prefrontal cortex. Um, And there's a lot of other scientific words about those different parts of the brain. But if you just remember that you have two basic places to go in your thinking. One is you just go with your gut, which is automatic. And if you're chased by a grizzly bear, you need to listen to your automatic brain. Because that's what's going to keep you alive. But if you see a person that's different from you or thinks different from you or has a different perspective than you, then we need to check in with our higher brain, which checks in with the Spirit of God, which checks in with the truth of God. We will not hear, primarily, we're not going to hear God's message when we're just acting out of our fear and out of our survival. So Matthew chapter 26, and thank you for those, those are great clarifications we need to have that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak Matthew chapter 26 verse 41 do you remember that story what was happening Jesus says hey can you guys just kind of hang out here and stay alert <laughs> what did their body do their body got tired they had did they have good reason to be tired well of course they did right so just stay awake just stay awake just Keep your mind on what God is wanting you to do. And what they do? They fell asleep. Because they weren't vigilant, listening, and pondering the will of God. They were caught up with being human and being fleshly, mortal beings. Remember what Samuel was getting ready to pick the oldest brother. Jesse was ready to pick the oldest brother. But it was God who said to Samuel, No, Samuel, you're barking up the wrong tree. Because God doesn't see as mortals see. So that same language, the language of mortals, mortal thinking, fleshly thinking. When you read that in scripture, there's, there's brain stuff behind that, right? Paul talks about having the mind of Christ. 
Well, the mind of Christ doesn't live out of fear, right? The mind of Christ lives out of hope in the, the glory of God and the power of God. All right, let's, um, let's um, move to 2 Samuel chapter 13. So how, did, how does favoritism affect David's blended family? Wow, <clears throat> what a family this was. David has an oldest son, his name is Amnon. Remember the story of Amnon? Now, Amnon has a different mom, right, than Absalom and Tamar. Amnon is the firstborn of the family, right? Now, remember, David was what? He was the baby boy. So you would think that if anybody would get this idea of not showing favoritism, it would be who? It would be David. But he doesn't. By the time he's having kids... This is long ago. And as some of our speakers have talked about, some of David's best decisions were made out of his humility, right? His worst decisions were made out of his pride. So by the time he starts having all these kids, he's got all these wives. Absalom's mom is a princess. Tamar is Absalom's sister, and they have a princess who is their mom. Do you think that power difference could have affected his relationship? With his kids, yeah. it might, it might, it might with us. You know, it might happen like that in our culture. So here we have David. He has Amnon, who's the firstborn. Amnon rapes Tamar, who's his half sister. And David says, "Wow, that's too bad." Amnon's my, Amnon's my favorite, right? I really like Amnon. <coughs> so David's favoritism for the firstborn. Now, why is he favor the firstborn? Because what's he learned from his culture? Not from God, but from his culture. Amnon will be king. Amnon will be king. And he is going against the very lesson he learned from God when Samuel chose him as God's prophet. So you can see how hard this is. And how easy it is for us to get caught up in favoritism in our own family systems. And then, of course, the story is just a horror story. It's awful what happens. And then, of course, Abs Absalom, uh, you know, kills Amnon. And then Absalom never has the same kind of relationship with David ever again. Totally changes. Absalom never looks to David the same way. He begins to see David as what? opposition adversary I'll take the throne right and this just keeps bleeding out from generation to generation David's blended family was a mess but before we get a little haughty and prideful we have to realize that we struggle with this today right John 14 verse 26 Jesus said I have to leave so the helper will come the Holy Spirit and so the early church needed to be indwelled. They needed to know that, that you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will come and teach you how to treat your children, how to love your children, how to love your adopted uh, grandchild, how to love your adopted child from China, or how to love your uh, your your. Uh, daughter born to your wife who's not at your birth. I hate the word step. You won't hear me talk about it. That's it. That's the last time I'll say it. <laughs> that word is biased in and of itself. So what word do you use? They're just my kids. Doctor's going to talk about this somewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you use whatever you, know, you, you feel like you should use. But having been, a, I hate it when I go to school, pick up my daughter, who's been my daughter since she was three, and the secretary of the office tells me, yeah, you can't, t you can't pick them up because their mother hadn't signed the paper to say you can pick them up yet. We'll talk about that some more. We have to slow down and take some breaths and check in with what God is calling us to do and how God is calling us to interact with our children and with other people's children. <clears throat> Favoritism versus giftedness. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says there is no favoritism with God. Cool. Wow, that's cool, huh? There's no favoritism with God. Then why did the Hebrew people constantly struggle to think that some people were above other people, right? Well, God clearly tolerates the Hebrew people dealing with life like they do, right? Anytime you're confused about the Hebrew Bible, read Jesus, and Jesus will explain what frustrates you about the Hebrew Scriptures. In the Sermon on the Mount, that's what the whole sermon is about. Jesus is constantly saying, okay, here's the deal. You have heard it said, now listen to the fulfillment of all that. In other words, the Hebrew Scriptures are taking us toward what? Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, you're still sort of hanging on to some ideas from the past, that aren't accurate. They're not fully accurate. So let's 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 bring that to uh, fullness. Romans chapter two verse eleven. There is no favoritism with God. So then, doesn't God pick people to do certain things? Yes, mm-hmm. He does. For example, let's say you have two children. You might ask the oldest fourteen-year-old child to babysit the four-year-old child while you and your spouse go out for dinner, right? Now, is it because you favor the oldest? You don't have to favor them and be biased toward them to say what? This person's gifted with the ability to do this job, right? God sometimes picks people and says, this person's right for this job at this time in history, right? That doesn't mean that God thinks they're less than, even though the culture thinks what? They're less than. What, uh, what about the king? Why did they have kings? Did God anoint the structure of kings? No. The Hebrews said, give us a king, give us a king. Because we think we're safer and better off and we have somebody above us that's in charge. And then finally, I'll wrap it up here and turn to Daughter and she'll finish out our class. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. I don't know if you're a nose or your eye or your foot or your hand or if you're an ear. I don't, know, I don't know what you are, but you are a part of the body of Christ. And there are no lesser than or greater than. You are equally important to the kingdom, but you may be gifted to be feet. And your brother or sister in the church may be gifted to be hands or to be ears to listen, right? So there's a difference in favoritism and giftedness and being called to a job or respond. You might have five kids and they all have different interests. One will be a great electrician, one will be a great brain surgeon, and one will be great at, uh, you know, I don't know, keep selling tacos on the beach. That's right. (laughs) Whatever. Doshi. This is all. So I I get the fun part. Yes. We get to talk about, let's just talk about for the nuclear family. Um, what are some biases that we just normally have? We're not going to talk about the additions of the blended family yet, but just a nuclear family. Some of the biases we have can be birth order. So, um, you know, whether where you are in line sometimes is how much um, value you get by parents. Um, and, and it's not necessarily um, good or bad, but, you know, like in, in our family, my dad refers to me as number one. And my brother and sister know that because I'm the oldest, you know. <laughs> but and, and that's just kind of a funny thing. It wouldn't be like a serious thing. Uh, um, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> there's also there's also gender bias. You know, I have a lot of clients or patients who will say, you know, it's really not fair the way that my older brother gets to go to a football game without my parents there, but I'm not allowed to, and we're the same. We were the same age when that happened. So gender bias is definitely something that does happen in nuclear families as well as blended families. And then skills, you know, um, like Steve talked about earlier, who's good at basketball, who's good at math, those kind of things. Sometimes different parents value more than other things. Um, and then sometimes how the children actually look or how they act. Mm-hmm. Because there are times when, like, um, my son 
who looks like his dad, if he doesn't take out the trash, I'll say, that's your son, right? You didn't take out the trash, you're acting like your dad. And there's a bias there. Or if he gets a really good grade at school, I'm like, well, that's my yeah. son. <laughs> Amen. You know? But we do that. We use possessive pronouns to kind of describe, and it's just something that we do. We don't think about it. But we use these possessive words. That's my child. That's your child. And we do that even in the nuclear family, not even mentioning, you know, a blended family. But the complex family does have unique challenges of its own. And one of the reasons is there is sort of a protection in the nuclear family that we do not have in a complex family. And the protection is when you have a natural child or a biological child, there is an inclination for that child to accept you. I have so many patients or so many kids who, like their mom might be a drug addict, but they have this desire that they want their mom. We have, there's just a, a natural um, gift that kids want their parents, right? And so that's something that sort of, I feel like, protects the nuclear family. Because when you have a complex family, you have more people in it. Whether the biologic parent is in it or they're not, they're still a part of the family system. There is still a desire for that child to want to know something about their biologic parent. Why did they give me up? Where are they? Why aren't they here? Are you doing as good a job? You're not my parent. How can you parent someone if they don't call you mom? You know? So there is just um, an added layer of stress that affects the blended family. Um, so we have a bigger bubble. So here's some of the things to think about. Is the biological parent involved? If they are involved, what kind of a relationship do they have? Are they healthy? Do they have drug addiction? Are they abusive? Have they been abusive? Have they harmed the child in some way? Those things all play into a blended family. What kind of resources are available? So maybe you have a child that is a foster child, and that child has resources that come from the state, and your biologic children don't have those kind of resources. Or maybe you have blended family, and some kids go to mom's on Christmas, and other kids go to dad's, and some kids come home with a truckload of, clo of clothes and stuff, and the other kids come home with one present. And so now they're all in the same family. How is that equitable? Do they see that there's a bias in that situation? What about time? How is time divided with the kids? So if you have pretty much sole custody of your kids and your spouse has pretty much less time, so when the kids are together, do they feel like maybe one child gets preferential treatment over another? based on how much time they get to spend with the family. And what about the multi-generational environmental issues? So if there are grandparents involved, do they treat the grandchildren the same? Do they give their biologic grandchildren more gifts, more time, more attention? Do they use the possessive pronouns with their own grandchildren and not with um, the, the bonus family. I don't really like the word bonus either. Yeah. Um, so we haven't got a good word. Yeah, there's, there's not a good word for it. It's just family. You know, it's just family. So I wanted to share with you just a few comments um, that we have, that, that I've experienced and things I've learned from. And some of these comments are things that I think we really need to educate each other on because I think the terms that we use are so important when we talk about blended families. And so um, I've had people say, well, which kids are really yours? Oh, yeah. yeah. Which ones are really yours? Maybe a different way to, to phrase that could be, how did you guys blend your family? How did this happen? What does it look like to you? It might be a, a better way to say it. But, you know, so when we came to our family, I birthed two, and he... Birth three. Imagine that. I should definitely be your favorite. I would always say that my stepkids, they were always, they were my children by a previous marriage. It wasn't my marriage, you know, but no one, no one understood that. Oh, these are my kids by a previous marriage. So, I mean, they all actually were because, you know. 
Um, but yeah, just trying to make the equity. So which kids are really yours? Or I have friends who have adopted children and they have adopted children from um, you know, different places and people will say, well, are they really brother and sister? Are they really brother and sister? Well, yeah, they belong to me. They're brother and sister, right? Um, and then um, I heard someone say to me, well, and she had the best meaning heart, and I just, I really appreciate that she said this because it helped me to kind of understand her perspective. And she said, well, you know, God can do good things through sin. God, God can do good things. So when she was saying that, she was saying, because you're divorced and because you're remarried, there was definitely some sin involved or you wouldn't be in this situation. But there was more than sin. There was dysfunction. There was trauma. There was all kinds of things involved. And by her saying it in that way, kind of puts you on a lesser than. Well, my family is okay because we've never broken up, you know? So I think that maybe the words that we choose, we have to think, what is my own perspective on remarriage? So I don't feel like I'm divorced. I'm married. You know, I was, I was the mother of a child when I was 16. I'm no longer a teenage mother. I'm married. I'm no longer divorced. I'm married. So we have to kind of move past that and help the people around us to kind of uh, use that same kind of terminology. Um, because, you know, it's gone. It's over. Um, and then this, this was really important. I have a friend who is adopted. And she was little at the time, and I was just teasing with her. And I was like, you know, it's not really fair that you get to celebrate your gotcha day and your birthday. How is that fair? She goes, well, how is it fair that I never got to meet my mother? Mm -hmm. And so I think at that point, we have to learn that if we're having the conversation, let's apologize when we say things that hurt other people's feelings. Let's say, you know, thank you for letting me know that I never saw it that way. And I've learned something from it. But if we're too afraid to have the conversation, then we're not ever going to be able to change our perspectives or to teach people around us. You know, we have to be brave to be able to say, hey, what's the best thing that I can do to kind of help you? How can I help? So those were just some comments that I just felt like um, we can use to kind of to teach people around us that um, this is it's just a family. It's just a bigger family with a bigger bubble. Uh, and so then I also want to talk about how the church has seen complex families in the past. So I want you to think about your church. How many programming things go out for blended families? How many times do you see um, programming for how to get along with your step-siblings? How to not take your sister's clothes to your dad's house? How to... Um, how to not be annoyed with your, with your step-parent. We don't talk about these things in church. And when we're doing programming things, we typically look at the nuclear family. Well, when kids are spending half time with one parent, half time with another parent, they're not typically able to do all of the things at church, you know, like um, the typical kid who can be there every weekend. So I think that just in leadership, we need to like think about that, take that into accountability, so that we can um, program with those kids in mind that uh, have less time availability. And how many kids in the, in the youth group that are leaders belong to blended families? We don't have any at our church. How many preachers have you ever known who were divorced, remarried, We, we knew a friend who um, had been in ministry for a long time, and his son um, actually lived in sin with a woman as an adult. He was 21, 22, and the preacher lost his job because his son was not, you know, meeting the expectations of the church. So I think we need to have some of these serious mm -hmm. conversations in our, home in our home congregations. What do we, what do we see? What do we feel? about this. One of the biggest problems that I see is when we look at these families, we say, what's wrong with you? 
What's wrong that happened to make this family like this? Instead of what happened to you? So they did a study in the 1980s and it was called the ACEs or the Adverse Child Events. And they found that children who go through trauma are more likely to have diabetes, to die young, 1,000 times more likely to commit suicide than kids who don't go through trauma. And question number six on the ACEs was, have you lost a parent to divorce or death? So these kids who have been through um, a trauma, such as divorce, such as adoption, 90% um, of kids who are in the foster care system are suffering with either depression or anxiety, some sort of a mental illness. And that's what I see in my practice quite a bit. So what, what can we do about it? We can see the family as God sees the family. And we can see these kids as divine and made by God to fulfill his purpose. And so when we have the opportunity to sit down with them and to listen to them, um, we can do it without judgment, and we can be careful of the words that we use. One of my favorite things is, how can I help? What, what can I do? You know, we don't have to know the answer. A lot of times we can talk to the individual family. What can I do to help you? You're overwhelmed. You've got five kids. Like, you know, can I take one for a few hours? Like, what can I do to help your situation at this time right now? So, can you take all of them? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so each family has specific challenges. Like with our family, we got um, together because our girls were best friends and our girls were six weeks apart. So we had three kids within 13 months and then the two um, little kids. And so our girls were either best friends, loved each other, they were totally against us, they were like a tight team, or they hated each other and they were punching each other and it was just all chaos for the whole family, you know? And so if there is a specific challenge with each family identifying that challenge and being able to reach out to your close friends and say, hey, this is what's going on, you know, what are some things you can do to help? So I, I do believe that um, resilience is possible, but I believe that resilience is only possible through God. And so by praying for these families, by teaching these families that God is there, you are not alone. And in these families, there is a lot of, um, of feelings of isolation. And so just saying, hey, you're not alone. Um, I have a friend who has adopted children, and so she meets with a support group. Um, and it's, it's a Christian support group just to kind of say, hey, we're in this together. We're going through the same kind of things. And so if churches can have things like that available for people, I think that that's awesome. So, and then my biggest advice that I've ever gotten, I guess, my, my favorite advice is, you know, it, it's hard to raise kids. And it's even harder to raise kids who don't want you to raise them. And one of my favorite pieces of advice that I ever got was, love them anyway. Love them anyway. And so if there's anything that anyone ever asks you, what can I do to help blended families, just tell them, love them anyway. Because they're going to grow, but if they know that they love you and that you are a safe place for them and you are an insulation from the world to protect them and to teach them and to point them where they need to go, then um, you're on the right track. Amen. All right, so let's take questions or thoughts. Yes. Well, I see something that I feel like is overlooked, and that's single parents. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, well, even just singleness yeah. within the church. Absolutely. I spoke at um, a single mom. I did a workshop for single moms, and these moms were all single because they were, had come out of abusive relationships. And... Uh, the whole session was about safety and boundaries and valuing yourself as a child of God and being able to say, I just, I need to, it's, it's healthy for me to be safe. Because again, they often, often, now of course there's lots of different situations and, and singledom, but being able to encourage people that, number one, God loves you, and going back to favoritism, God loves you just like he loves the rest of us. That a single mom is not um, somehow less than in the church family. The blended family isn't somehow less than in the church family. Good point. 
Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah. So um, do you have suggestions for, well, I'm imagining my higher brain is kind of a muscle that needs to be exercised. <laughs> yeah. So if I have a child that um, pushes my buttons yes. more than the other ones, uh -huh, uh -huh. and sometimes um, I'm not able to count to 10 mm -hmm. with this kid. Right, yeah. So um, besides prayer, meditation do you have suggestions to exercise my higher brain right. so that I can I'm, I'm better get better at slowing it down right absolutely well first of all like you said there are times that we have to answer immediately we have to say don't put your finger in the light socket we have to say that immediately don't run into the street right there are things that we have to say that are about safety in the family and boundaries um, so exercising the muscle so what we know about brain plasticity, and uh, our friend uh, has, knows a lot about, you could tell us, you could teach us a class on brain neuroplasticity. <laughs> but basically, uh, imagine that the way you've thought in the past, this is, it's, it's coded in your brain. Imagine that there's a barn and the cows go to the pond, right? And they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I grew up in the country, so I've seen lots of cow paths, right? So inside of your brain, there's a coded path that takes you, you get triggered, whoo, I feel this, and I do this. So we, we are automatically moved to that, out of that automatic brain. Now, what we can do is over time, if I do a, a new thing, and I do it, and I do it, and I do it, and I do it, guess what happens? It becomes dominant, and the old pattern changes. So, and this is very simplified, but so then, so then we have to ask ourselves, um, like my, our old, my oldest son is just like me, right? Who's possessive pronoun? My, you said my oldest son. Our oldest son, sorry. There you go. The automatic brain, that's right. Can't our oldest son, our oldest son. We just can't win at this, can we? He and I do this. We, not so much now, he's 27. But as an adolescent it was like this all the time and I had to learn to slow myself down and say why am I so scared of him because see um, this 20 times faster is your it's your fear brain it's your survival brain and so if you boom what do you say that when you go to that that's anger anger is a secondary emotion and it's born from the fear I'm dysregulated, I don't feel okay, and my son looks at me and I interpret his look as, you are the stupidest parent on earth. <laughs> and maybe that's what you feel, right? And, I want to teach, teach you a trick. This yeah, is really, really cool. I learned this in school. Okay, so you know your ABCs? Yeah. Okay. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, H, I, K, right? You could do them in like two or three seconds. I'm doing backwards. Go ahead. Okay. Do it. Z Y X W V V D C X. I have to sing it. Okay, and then you know that you know your numbers one to twenty six, right? You could do one two three four five six seven. You could do that like less than five seconds, right? Now let's put them together. Do it out loud. A one B two C three D four E. Yeah, it's harder. Because <laughs> you have to think about it. You have to think about it, and uh -huh. the reason is not automatic. Exactly. Right. So we right. automatically you know, can go to these things that we've learned and we have super highways for it. But the things we don't have super highways for, you have to think about. And you cannot think about two things at one time. You can't think about being mad at your child and being in the presence of God at the same time. You can't. And so something that people do to kind of flex that muscle is they bring themselves into awareness. So, and you have to practice this when he's not in your presence, you know? But, like, people will take, you know, a deep breath in, count to six, breathe out, count to eight. And you'll have to do that over and over, and eventually that becomes automatic. But that's something that has to be practiced over and over. Or you can um, bring yourself to awareness. Like, what do I see right now? What do I feel right now? What, like, the, just the physical sensations around you. Practice that two or three times a day, and then eventually you'll be in that situation. You'll feel your heart rate racing, and you'll be like, oh, right. I feel my heart racing. And then you can bring your mind to something that's not automatic. Right. And we're, we're taking that to young children in school. Yeah. yeah. Right, which is wonderful. Are we? More, oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. More mindfulness, yeah. But the key is you have to practice it 
all practice, practice, practice. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. It is not a, well, I did that once last week. Yeah. I don't know why it's not natural. We have to do it, yeah, constantly, all the time. The more we do it, it here's another little tip. It takes about 12 weeks to create a new habit. It is not going to happen in a week. It's not going to happen after that one great sermon on Sunday morning. You know, it's, It takes at least 12 weeks to create a new habit. In other words, you're going to feel really uncomfortable doing this new thing for at least seven or eight weeks. And then it's going to start, well, yeah. It's just like any exercise you do. Uh, one other thing about what, Amy, you're talking about with that question is um, you also can give yourself, as Dr. said, if you're just really feeling like, oh, my gosh, they know I don't know what I'm doing as a parent, right? The children don't know that I have a brain. They don't, but they, they know that I'm really scared that I'm messing up. So we can give ourselves a break to take a breath in the interaction by saying to the child, Hey, can you tell me what's happening for you right now? See, when I turn that back, like let's say they just tell me, you're the worst parent in the world, or you're not my mom, or you are, <laughs> you're my dad, but I wish I had a new one, you know, whatever. <laughs> then what's that like for you? And then you're able to take some breaths while they're talking more. And then you're able to go, wait a minute, they're really overwhelmed, which means they're scared. And they don't think they're going to get what they want. And for them, survival is based on what? Them getting what they want. That, and they think that that's, if they don't have their iPad back in, you know, 10 minutes, then their life is going to end, or their phone, or whatever. So for them, uh, another thing is expectations. <clears throat> so you get this for free. All this is all for free, actually. So imagine, so expectations like it's a little balloon and it's sort of out there floating out there the the distance between where i am and where the balloon is creates anxiety depression grief fear okay so anytime you think something is going to happen the way you want it to and it doesn't you get overwhelmed you're triggered so when you get in your car and you think oh traffic's going to be great <laughs> right but if you know, hey, you know what? I'm just going to spend time with God in traffic, and I'm just going to let, you know, God and I are going to hang out, and if it takes me 20 minutes or 40 minutes to get where I'm going, I'm not going to let anybody that gets in my way trigger me. But if we think, I'm leaving late, I've got to get there in less time, then we're anxious or overwhelmed because we've already started out with a false expectation. Exactly. And I think, too, sometimes we set ourselves up for failure, so we'll say, it's going to be so much traffic. Yeah. So we're going with that whole idea of it's going to be so much traffic, yes. but we don't plan and say, if it's so much traffic, maybe I can, like, put on a book in the, you know, yeah. audio book. Yeah. Maybe I can yeah. decide to, you know, have alternatives yes. instead of saying, yes. this is going to happen. Yes. Say, well, if it happens, then what else can I do? Yes. Good. So we don't set ourselves up for alternatives. Exactly so right. then we set ourselves up for failure because we're always saying <laughs> things that are going to come true. Right, right. And they do come true. That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just um, I was really struck by what you said, Daltry, about how little as churches we have to offer for um, support, like classes and so forth for blended families. I was just wondering, are there resources, what resources are out there to help churches to be able to address that? We had a workshop did in Deal. Yeah, yeah. Who, who did that? I think his name, his last name oh, is Deal. Oh, Deal. And he's okay. on the lecture circuit here. Okay. okay. And he can come to your church and do a workshop and bring the family. Okay. And, and he's on the, the radio. And by the way, um, can you... Let me just, Susie Brown is here, and she has information with her about divorce uh, care that she does in her church. Well, it's not actually divorce care because I strongly believe that early divorce recovery needs to be gender-specific. Uh, and no. so I, I specialize in yeah. women, going women going through divorce. Yeah, women Thank you for correcting that. Yeah. And we're trying to develop stuff from them. Good, good. It's helpful information, too. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point, too, about having a, a safe place. Another thing I wanted to say is that it's also difficult sometimes to know what to say because sometimes it's the really situation hard. is the elephant in the room. So it's right. not because somebody doesn't want to say a caring thing, it's just that they don't know what to say. 
And this often mutes the church. So the, the church says nothing because we're scared to say the wrong thing. Exactly. Well, and, and you know, that's why open-ended questions are always safer than closed-ended questions, right? Like if I meet you and I say, hey, uh, where do you work? And you say, I just got fired. I don't have a job. Thanks a lot, right? But if I say, hey, what's kept you busy this week? That's really wide open. It can go anywhere. So if we, and again, that goes back to we got to think about having open questions. Yeah, and we do that with our children. Because sometimes we will make assumptions about our kids and we'll tell them what they're thinking. We'll tell them, what, oh, so, you know, you just don't want to do what I say, right? So, kind of a different topic, but yeah. um, as kids who grow up in blended families get older and enter into their own relationships, mm -hmm. what kind of things do they take with them, like, from that experience as opposed to someone who comes out of it? Well, as, uh, in addition to what Daughtry talked about, that there are certain traumas and that the children take with them. But basically, uh, there's a lot of really good research. You can research John Bowlby and attachment research. But basically, all of us have an attachment response. So all of us were little ones. And if I, if I were, okay, for example, I had a client um, in therapy who had an older sibling he was, the, he was the oldest, and then his, second, his little brother was born and had health problems. So the parents, those were good people, but guess what they did when they had the sick baby? Focused. Focused totally on the baby that was sick, and, then, and the, the child continued to have health problems all through adolescence, all the way up to adulthood. So guess what? There's an attachment injury there with the old. There's no abuse. We might not list it as a trauma, but this, even though it was in a blended family, this older sibling automatically had this attachment perspective of people really don't care about me. People really don't, they're not going to be there for me. And so that person tends to have an avoidant attachment. They tend to meet people and go, hey, you probably don't want to hang out with me. You're probably not going to be there for me. And so that comes not only in blended situations, but just sometimes even in nuclear families where there's something happening or if there's problems, there are people who stay married for 60, 70 years and they don't get along. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> and so the kids sometimes are affected by that, those parental systems. And so moms may be not feeling that dad loves them. There's this stress in the family, and there's not ever a divorce, but yet there's still the stressors for the kids. And the kids can go, oh, well, I'm going to pursue people to get them to like me. And other kids will say, yeah. People aren't going to be there for me. Basically, when you meet a human being, they're going to tend to have an avoidant attachment, which they're like, eh, I'll take care of myself. I'll go alone. I'm good without any help. And then other people are like, oh, hi, how are you? Let me talk to you. Guess what I am? I'm a pursuer, right? I'm a pursuer. I want to add one more thing, yep. uh, one a different kind of uh, situation. So I do have several kids in my practice who have one parent that might be a Christian or a believer who really wants really good things for the kids. And then they have another parent who may, when the kid comes over, they will let them smoke pot with them or they will drink with them or they'll say, you know, your mom doesn't really know. And then so there can be a lot of tension between the parents and they don't... Um, they don't raise the kids with the same sort of values. And that can be really hard on the kids. And when we can identify that and just kind of sit with the kid and just, you know, it, it does take a village. And so if there are friends at church you have and you know that when your kid goes to, um, you know, their bio dad's house, there can be some trauma there. If you have friends that are modeling the same things you are and the more you can get your kids with those people that have the same values as you, but you have to really have a, a tight, close relationship with people because um, it sometimes it's hard to identify that. Sometimes people, you know, when people go to church, they put on this face like, "Hey, everything's okay," and it's really hard to kind of be vulnerable. Um, and so, if when we are vulnerable, say, "Hey, you know, I've raised kids too, and it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Is there anything that I can do to kind of help you in this situation?" Um, I think just being vulnerable and, and kind of being aware of situations that can happen right. like that. And I think congregationally, congregationally we have to remember uh, a sermon's not going to nail it and a sermon series is not going to nail it. They need, people need a few people to get with that, that they can hang out with 
and they have comfort and encouragement and safety. If you have a little small group who, you, you know, you, it's open to everybody, but it's, you have some safety there. Uh, you can do a, a three-week series on something like that, but if you don't have a place where people are saying, hey, let's, you know, like uh, there's a, some ladies that they're all single and they go out for lunch every Sunday together and they meet a single mom and they're like, hey, go out with us. It's not a formal, you know, preacher-led event. Organic. It's organic and it's relational. And that's what people need is they need relationship with God and relationship with people who know God and who live that out. You guys are awesome. Thanks for coming. Blessings.